I started writing poetry, it was like a really bogus uh, Lord Byron kind of poetry. I mean, I really yeah. liked the sonnet on Shalon, the prisoner of Shalon. You know, uh-huh. that really phony, looks to me like posing romanticism. So but, I mean, that, like, I, like I, poetry. Yeah, like, you know. Uh, <laughs> the rhyming couplets. I can't, I can't read Byron at this point. And, yeah. That, that's what I used to do. That's how I started. It was that in high school then? In high school. I wasn't writing poetry like that. That was just my favorite. When I started writing poetry after when I was 19, then that's sort of how I started writing. Well, what, what, what happened then in 19 that, that caused you to start writing poetry? Well, I got. Uh, I was on my way to becoming a novelist. I was very happy with Dostoevsky and yeah. writing prose. And then uh, I wound up in a class with Ed Dorn. You're listening to the 2007 Jack Straw Writers Program. On this edition of the podcast, you'll hear program curator Matt Briggs interview writer Charles Potts. There's a lot more to the non-formal parts of American poetry. I have a lecture that I give on Charles mm-hmm. Olson and Charles Bukowski. Bukowski and his publisher, John Martin, did this tiny little book. It only had five pages or six pages. It says, when the inspiration wanes, form sets in or form appears something like that <laughs> yeah, yeah. and like edward smith said to a, a clip shoots a poet that we're associated with said uh forms are to pour concrete in but it's uh you have more responsibility and more possibilities if you're outside the form in, in my opinion so i can imagine then uh i mean th- these are things that ed dorn uh brought to the class there must have been a, a change then in whatever you were thinking. Well, about. I, I, sto- were, I stopped were, trying to write like Lord Byron and, and managed to write some really decent poetry by reading uh, William Carlos Williams, who, oh, okay. who was a, not a formal poet. And William Carlos Williams recognizes— But he's definitely free verse. Well, I don't know that it's free, but he, he had a thing called the, the verse uh, vuelta, loose, loose foot was what he tried to right. say. Yeah. And— what, what, what you can learn, what any young poet, any writer can learn from reading William Carlos Williams is that, is that if you can recognize the musicality and the language and you have something to say that's based on real information and real feelings, if you just express yourself, you're, it's going to be really okay. You know, so uh, when William Carlos Williams says something like, I've seen a wall so covered with ivy that you could not tell by which... Either stands. This is to say that if she to whom I cling falls, we both go down. You don't need a form for that. The wall, the, the wall and the ivy are the form. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, in yeah. the stuff, and then then in the relationship with his wife. It's a poem about recognizing the the symbolic or uh-huh. the synergistic relationship between a marriage which is fairly fragile, or like. You say, you know, you got to remember your parents aren't related, <laughs> you know, but the wall and the ivy are. And so, and you, you noticed that and brought them together. Right. You know. Now you'll hear Charles reading his work at a live performance at Jack Straw Productions. Geezers in Space, a.k.a. the case for American exceptionalism for John Glenn et al., All Americans are exceptional. Let them tell you. It was an exceptionally wide path God cleared for them through the exceptionally beautiful American wilderness over an exceptionally large number of dead Indians, creating the exceptional doctrine of manifest destiny, which manifests itself in their exceptional reluctance to acknowledge the exceptional scale of the genocide 
which is the bedrock of their exceptionality. The exceptionally rigid American Constitution has governed the United States for an exceptional length of time, disguising the plutocratic use of power as democracy exceptionally well. Look at all these exceptional immigrants ratifying these exceptional choices. The last thing anybody needs to know anything about is geriatric reactions in space. And so an exceptionally large amount of money was blown into space to discover the effect of weightlessness on mindlessness. <laughs> There's a lot of dudes bringing up the, the subject of how badly theocracy treats people who take it seriously. I'm talking about Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and now Christopher Hitchens has weighed in with uh, his little book, Oh, God is Not Great. If you like Ravel and Bolero, you're going to love this. It's called Binary. This is a binary poem. It's either a one or a zero. Please come forward and take a number. Any number will do as long as it's a one or a zero. You're either on or you're off. The gates are either open or they're closed. It's a binary system, a one or a zero, a digital system, no space for analog fudge. Everything and everybody else is no place. It's cosmic dualism, where you're challenged to be either a one or a zero, be on or be off, existence or non-existence. Binary breaks the law of averages, boosts the gold from the mean, washes out the middle ground. The system is either open or it's closed. It's either a one or a zero. It's the spittle of Aristotle made to resemble manna. This is your opportunity to be either a one or a zero. Be part of the problem or be part of the solution. You're either a one or a zero. Don't look for halfway in between, half-hearted, half-baked, half-assed, half-cocked, hermaphrodites. The mic is either on or the microphone is off. The charge is either negative or the charge is positive. A neutral charge is a terminal contradiction among lapsed oxymorons. Stasis, neutrality, equilibrium, peace and quiet, forget about it. They're just states you pass through on your way from one to zero with no place to stay, not even a manger for a fictitious virgin birth. Step up and take a number. Be a one or be a zero. No other numbers need apply. Be happy you're either a one or a zero. It's an open and shut case. You could try for more than one or less than zero, but that would make you a novelist, and we don't do prose. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> my, my life, according to Matt, is entirely too long and convoluted. Um, <laughs> this, I, I, I went to school once with a mathematician who said we live too long. Do we live too long? We, we, he was getting tired of the war. We're all tired of the war. Uh, this poem's in the anthology. It's a great blue heron lands on a poplar snag, making me wonder momentarily how a pterodactyl got all the way here from the late Cretaceous, until I realize this beautiful bird got here the same way the rest of us did, one egg at a time. Which is uh, a long shot. Uh, 
mom and dad. I was raised in the desert by a father who believed I was someone else's child and a mother's conditional love. My mother had brains and my father had guts. When I'm good, I'm using both. My mother was very sociable. My father did 10,000 things alone. My mother loved to spend money. My father wanted to invest. I've invested all of our money so there'll be more to spend. My mother wanted to have a good time. My father wanted to survive. I survived by having a good time. I'm the predictable result of the underlying structure of my life. And as we head for the roundup, <laughs> my, I'm going to live a lot longer, and that's uh, going to make some people, uh, I don't know. There's a line in here in Japanese, sagashite uh, imasu. The, the hero's name of this poem is Mitsuhiro. So when I say Mitsuhiro-san o sagashite imasu, that just is the title, which is searching for Mitsuhiro. Sagashite imasu means searching for. Mitsuhiro Tanaka-san and Kenji Takahashi-san from Yamari High School in Yokohama spent two weeks with our family last year in April on cultural exchange. Among the many presents they gave Natalie were two small cotton bears, which she named after them. Walking on the western shore of Wallawa Lake during a break in the Fish Trap Writers Conference, Natalie fell asleep in my backpack and let go of, lost Mitsuhiro as he fell from her relaxed hand. Searching for Mitsuhiro by backtracking the route served only to remind me of all the other Mitsuhiros I've lost and how excited I had been to have two, however temporarily, young Japanese sons in my house. I'm told there's a tradition on Children's Day in Kyoto when the parents of aborted and miscarried fetuses visit the temple to light the candles and bless the little Buddhas, bibbed or aproned and made of stone, that they've enshrined to honor them. The musical poet Bill Shively said, Moved by attending such a ceremony and observing the love lavished on it, the unborn children are doing okay. I draw comfort from the saving grace of being father to three beautiful daughters, one more perhaps than the law traditions or some people's economics will allow me to be made rich beyond comprehension and forever humbled in their love. Even as I go on searching for Mitsuhiro, Mitsuhiro-san o sagashite imasu, and find myself looking into the eyes and faces of every other young man or boy I see or meet for clues to what being the father of a living son would be like, Geppetto, bringing those feelings to the surface of a gut-wrenching complexity one more time. I see again also the faces and feel the hands and cherish the love and affection bestowed upon me by the necessarily nameless young women who went on to abortions and miscarriages after spending some good times in my arms. I dissipate into an invisible cloud of helpless shame and embarrassment. Might one of them have been my son, which I'll never have, even as I go on searching for Mitsuhiro-san or Sagashite in my memory and imagination, finding only fragments of myself in failed relationships, still lost with a small cotton bear curled up on the trail and dimly reflected in the faces of the dozens of young men and boys I help us to understand all of our children are all of our children and deserve our undivided attention and unconditional love. Mitsuhiro-san, osagashite imasu.
This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2007 curator of this program is Matt Briggs. Music performed by Jim Canodal for writer Pam Dion's residency in the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure and Tom Stiles. Arts Program's manager is Van Deep. Narrator is Michelle Kazak, and executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, the Mayor's Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, For Culture, King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.